0: Major funding for Telehel is provided by PodGo, the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. By RetroCirc on YouTube. Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end, is a place where nostalgia is the main attraction. Check out their newest downloads every Wednesday and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Retro Cirque, where nostalgia is the main attraction. By Dave's Archives on YouTube, where they preserve classic commercials from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and share them with you, the adoring YouTube public. Don't forget to follow them on Facebook and on Instagram at Dave's Archives and by the continued financial support of patrons like you at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash including Mr. Cheeseball, Rick Kolacki Jr., Peter Melnick, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Death. Not unlike taxes and pumpkin-flavored everything in the fall, Death is one of those great inevitabilities that all living creatures must face. Sometimes, it's sudden. Other times, it's a long, protracted process that even though we know what the outcome will be, it still hits us like a kick in the nuts. And Satan knows we've probably seen more than enough of our fair share of it in the past few years alone. After death comes the inevitable grieving and mourning process particularly the decision as to whether or not a person's life should be solemnly revered, or as some people seem to be doing these days, celebrate the life of the deceased with their own flourishes and flares. For instance, and I hesitate to use him as an example, Jim Henson. Could you
1: ever hand Kermit over to someone else? Well, maybe when I get to be an old man. Well, Kirby will get old. I'll pass him on. He's aged, what, about a day in the last uh, 28 years? That's the nice thing about puppets,
2: they don't age at all.
0: When the Muppet Maker died suddenly in 1990, he made sure that certain conditions were made for his memorial service, the most memorable of which was that a Dixieland jazz band performed there, and that the wearing of the color black was prohibited. Never to be one to turn down a dying man's last wishes, that's how the show went down. When Henson was still on the mortal plane, his thoughts on those decisions were, quote, "...it feels strange writing this kind of thing while I'm still alive, but it wouldn't be easy to do after I go." End quote. That's probably one of the more public examples of a person's death being handled not just with dignity, but also with a touch of lightheartedness. And while we believe it's perfectly fine to do memorial services with a bit of an upbeat tone, there should be limits as to just how upbeat that tone should be. Ernie, you screwed up, you got the wrong stiff. But we're supposed to bury a man, and up here is the ugliest woman
1: I ever saw. Good grief, following Married with Children, Sunday on
3: Fox. And now, uh, here we go. This is Hell.
0: All right, let me get my spinning arm ready. And a swing there, okay. Now that we're all loosened up, it's time once again for Wheel of Fox Failures. You know how this works. We've got a wheel chock full of TV shows from the Fox network that lasted a season or less. And considering the network has been on for almost 35 years, you can imagine how many spokes this wheel has. So let's give the old girl a yank and. <laughs> that 80s fast Andy lane, Andy Richter controls the universe. Freaky, girls, one,
1: teen, Eddie, Criss, The Street, Malone, American Embassy, a minute with seven, the Entertainer, Normal, the Ohio, tick, Pasadena,
0: harsh realm. Good oh, grief! It's hard to imagine in this day and age. But once upon a time, during the Fox network's infancy, they had just as hard a time trying to find new shows to put on their fledgling schedules as they did simply keeping them on the air, or at least that was the case until the spring of 1990, when these guys showed up. To tell the story of how former Tracy Ullman filler segment The Simpsons turned the Fox network into a full-fledged network would take far too long to tell on a podcast that glorifies success. We don't do that around here. But for the purposes of this story, it's hard to understate just how important the arrival of The Simpsons was for the then three-year-old TV network. Thanks to the ratings it was pulling in on Sunday nights, Fox not only became a force to be reckoned with, but it also made the development season for the fall of 1990 a little more tantalizing. Suddenly, a higher caliber of star wanted to have a show on a network that suddenly had the biggest hit on television. A hit so big that Fox wound up taking The Simpsons from Sunday nights to Thursday nights in the fall of 1990 to try and be the death blow to a certain comedian's career without the use of courtrooms decades later. But with The Simpsons putting Thursday nights in its crosshairs, that meant that the network's Sunday lineup of 1990 would have a hole to fill. Now, granted, Sunday nights in 1990 had a lot of heavy hitters and fresh starters. From America's funniest Vin DeBona hour on ABC, to Jessica Fletcher exciting the elderly on Murder, She Wrote, to whatever the hole this was on NBC. Yeah, <sighs> man, I mean, that's what it's all about.
2: I'm a teacher. We have to be discreet. <gasps>
0: If you uh, tell anybody about
1: this, I have to kill you.
0: Somebody is gonna get busted. It's gonna get ugly. Oh, huh. Fox did face a bit of an uphill battle, but not without heavy hitters of its own. Of course, you have the long established Married with Children holding things down thanks to some newfound Think of the Children esque publicity. But what about the show that would take over The Simpsons at 8 p.m.? The
2: winner
1: of this year's Emmy is. In Living Color!
0: Not unlike The Simpsons, In Living Color was another Fox show that seemingly came out of nowhere to not only be a ratings hit, but also shock the TV world by winning an Emmy for Outstanding Variety Series in 1990. With that vote of confidence, Fox decided to put the upstart sketch comedy show in the 8pm slot for Sunday nights. The night was also rounded out with shows that skewed towards the younger folks, including a sitcom about an interracial family called True Colors, the cult classic, classic, Chris Elliott's show, Get a Life, and one of two rip-offs to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Parker Lewis Can't Lose. The other rip-off is on another network, and for another time. Jeez, two in a day? Which leaves us with what aired in the 9.30 time slot. Obviously, with Married with Children as its lead-in, the show was destined to be a hit no matter what. Or so Fox thought. But just to be on the safe side, with the wind of the Simpsons at Fox's sails, they decided to swing for the fences. They hired one of the great old pros of TV and movie comedy writing, Stu Silver, who throughout the 80s involved himself in a number of sitcom linchpins, including Benson, Soap, and Bosom Buddies. But his biggest yet circuitous TV success came with the creation of It's a Living and Webster, those two shows proved to be minor yet viable enough hits that Silver then took his talents to the big screen, where he would do some script doctor work for the Robin Williams classic
1: Good Morning Vietnam! and
0: would later find his biggest success by penning the Oscar-nominated but underappreciated Throw Mama from the Train. Suffice to say, by the turn of the decade, Stu Silver was in demand, and for a network like Fox to grab him was seen as a bit of a coup. Now all they needed was an idea of his that had a certain Fox appeal, something that the other networks wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, yet was just appealing enough so that people would actually tune in. In Silver's defense, the idea he had was unconventional for TV in general, let alone network TV it may very well have been the very first tv series ever to take place at a funeral home long before the fisher family on six feet under tried to make funerals cool if not slightly pretentious Stu Silver's idea was a pie in the face in comparison. And before you ask, no, this doesn't break our rule about talking about a show where somebody died during production. This was to be the tale of a brother and sister who ran a funeral home somewhere in Ohio. The sister happened to be married to somebody who wanted to treat one's final resting place with a little more oomph, compared to her straight-laced brother wanting to keep things solemn. In other words, he wants to put the fun back in funeral. With a subject this delicate, there was really only one man who could accomplish such a feat.
3: What, what?
1: What, what? I just got a weird feeling in my ass. This is, no, what, what, what? No, tell me, tell me, cause I won't tell anybody.
0: What? It's almost hard to imagine a time when he wasn't as restrained as he would eventually become on shows like Deal or No Deal, or America's Got Talent, or for his advocacy of obsessive compulsive disorder, which we promise we're not going to make fun of here. Intentionally. But once upon a time in the 1980s, there were times when Howie Mandel acted like Robin Williams on Crystal Meth, and yet... People liked him anyway. <laughs> it's like giving me a boner. No, it just, it just. Possibly because when he wasn't running amok with a rubber glove on his head, Mandel would also tone it down a bit. As Dr. Wayne Fiskus on the critically acclaimed *Sane Elsewhere*. But you should
1: understand, I just create possibilities, circumstances. I turn my head, I look back. Things have changed. Sometimes for better, sometimes not. But that's okay. You all look for reasons, rewards. But people should be more concerned with what goes on down there, and not what comes after.
0: Only to find some middle ground voicing some of the 1980s most popular cartoon characters.
1: Skeeter, Skeeter, talk like this. No Skeeter. Oh, bye-bye.
0: If you don't listen to me, I'll let let your sister disappear.
1: The most important who? No horseplay. No (laughs) horseplay.
0: In spite of, or because of, his swings and energy, Mandel was one of the most in-demand comedians of the 1980s, and both Fox and Stu Silver demanded that Howie starred in this new sitcom. Uh, Okay, maybe not demanded, but Howie still said yes anyway. Howie's wife on the show would be played by somebody who was already connected to Stu Silver and is one of our returning champions with experience in sitcoms dealing with the afterlife.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, heaven just got one hell of a weather angel. Or... If the allegations that followed Dickie his entire life turn out to have been true, hell just got one angel
0: of a weather demon. One year after she was one of the unfortunate casualties of Eric Idol's Nearly Departed, Wendy Shaw, who got her big break on Stu Silver's It's a Living, was cast in her first Fox series. But lucky for her, it wouldn't be her last. Just say the word. Don't do it, Francine.
2: All I heard was do it.
0: Honey, it's not loaded. Veteran character actor Joel Brooks would play the straight-laced owner of the funeral home, Warren. Essentially the Mr. Mooney to Howie Mandel's Lucy Carmichael. Another veteran character actor and name Stu Silver left on his Rolodex thanks to a few episodes of Soap was Sheldon Feldner, who would play one of the funeral home's undertakers named... Raoul. Rounding out the cast was another all-time great who had just wrapped up one of his biggest successes. Kirk's upset because I'm wearing my new
1: turtleneck. I'm upset because you're wearing it with your overalls. Any fool knows it goes with the brown cords.
0: Well, if you know that, then you must be the fool. (laughs) Fresh off of eight years of playing befuddled handyman George Utley, the legendary Tom Poston would come on as the funeral home's gravedigger and Mandel's character's former partner in actual crimes, Ringo Prowley. But he wouldn't actually show up until the second episode. And since we rarely cover second episodes of anything around here, in the interest of fairness, here are some of Tom Poston's best moments on the show. I couldn't work here. This is a mortuary. There are dead people all over the place.
1: You can't go. I need you. Sorry, it's not for me. I couldn't stay here. Uh Uh-uh. Not if you begged me. Not if you got on your knees and begged me. And offered to pay me hundred and seventy-five dollars. <laughs> See, so a dollars is out of the question. If you offered me a hundred and sixty, I'd be on the first bus out of town. That's a shame, because 225's all I have. Then I don't want to waste your time. Not for under a hundred. Uh, unless I made a phone call and scraped up 350. Make two, call it 140. 200. 120. 175. Done. And...
0: <laughs> okay, I didn't say there were many of them, I just said some. But I digress. All of these forces would come together to put on something that certainly fit the mold of the Fox Network's early years. It had an unconventional subject, but a decent cast and crew to pull it off. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Okay, I'll, I'll be honest here. The only time I've even heard about this show was when I had to make a secondhand reference to it when we reviewed Pauly Shore's 1997 sitcom last year. But it was the way that the critical blurb was stated that my curiosity about this one seemed to have peaked, going so far as to say that Shore's show wound up unseating the one that we're about to cover as the worst Fox sitcom of all time at that time. Let me say that again. This show, which we're about to look at, That Stu Silver, in all his infinite wisdom, decided to call Good Grief, was once considered so bad that it took the power of Pauly Shore to dethrone it as the Fox network's worst sitcom ever, up to a certain point. That being said, how can something be as annoying, as cloying, and as downright insufferable as Polly Shore.
1: Warren Pepper ran a respectable mortuary.
0: Ernie Lapinas? <laughs> but that was before Ernie came along. I'm gonna go to jail. they will
1: make a man out of you. They're gonna put me in a cell with a guy named Axel. Good grief.
2: Okay, so it'll make a woman out of you. And a whole new episode, Tonight on
0: Five. I'm guessing that question will be answered for me.
3: After the break (coughs) One, two, three, four Hey, you're young and swinging No
0: time to think about tomorrow But there ain't no way to deny it Someday you're
2: gonna
3: buy it
1: convenient locations plus for group rates and free parking it's all yours at Ferryman Roll.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> this week on telehealth's premium content of the dam.
1: <coughs> Who asked you to go out of town? The stupid young one or the married one? The married one. That's what we thought. Don't go, you hear me? Hmm. And you know what, you're not listening to me because I see you going. <laughs> I see you going. I'm just <laughs> telling you, I'm trying to help you to avoid the heartache. Don't go blindly through life. Let me use the power of the tarot to show you the way. Call me now for your free reading. <laughs>
3: The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture.
0: September 30th, 1990. Tensions in the Middle East begin to escalate thanks to Operation Desert Shield. A phenomenon known as Twin Peaks renewed America's interest in mysteries, cherry pie, and damn good coffee. And at 9.30, 8.30 Central, TV's first ever show about life at a death house begins in the most appropriate way possible. With a pseudo-island bead and Howie Mandel dressed head-to-toe in golf clothes playing a round of golf on
3: a cemetery ground.
0: See the sky so
1: blue, smell the grass so nice and green.
0: The best way I could describe these credits, aside from obvious antithesis in action, is, in a word, shenanigan-tastic. Clearly, we're seeing a lot of wackiness juxtaposing with elements where said wackiness should not be taking place, thus setting the tone for what's to come, with about as much subtlety as playing ping-pong with a bowling ball. After that harbinger of things to come, we then get down to business, where uptight Warren is getting ready for his day. As an old movie he's watching goes to commercial, we see a word from our sponsor. We didn't alter the sound on this part, by the way, it's just the sound of it going through an old CRT TV.
1: Remember, friends, a funeral is not a time for display of cheapness. Think about it. Do you think your guilt will let you get away with spending less than... Five, six thousand dollars? Of course not. You don't believe that, and we don't believe that. So call soon. If you buy a plot today, we'll throw in your loved one for free. I'm not kidding, because at Sincerity Mortuary, we care, even after you've stopped.
0: <laughs> Naturally, Warren is a little disturbed by Howie's actions. And yes, I know Howie's playing a guy named Ernie in this, but let's face it, we're just gonna call him Howie anyway. Warren is so disturbed by the commercial that he storms into Howie's office without any pants. Because it's not like Howie is conducting any business or anything, right? Hi, Warren. You are a disgrace. I have never seen anything as tasteless, as patently offensive in my
1: life. Where, by God, is your sense of dignity? (laughs) I believe you know Mrs. Hillendale?
0: So far, there's not really anything in this show that would warrant a comparison to Paulie Shore's sitcom. It just seems like a standard, wacky office show with unconventional workplaces. Something's got to trigger the alarm.
1: Now, Mrs. Hillendale, here's what I envision. I see a small group of friends.
0: Oh, Harold loved his friends. I know.
1: Soft music playing in the background.
2: Harold loved soft music.
1: I know. A chorus of young boys
2: Harold loved young boys
0: Yikes Thanks Satan that's just a throwaway joke And not a crucial plot point We hope As a now fully dressed Warren comes back To give Howie the business about the business We are the laughing stock of the American Mortuary Society Look at this Tuesday the 11th A Mrs. Dresden called and wanted to be stuffed They stuffed her Uh
1: Admit it you were actually going to stuff Mrs. Dresden. Mr. Dresden wanted it that way. You you don't think that I would mount a grown woman
0: arbitrarily. I have never mounted a woman in my life. And after listening to that exposition dump, I have to ask myself and the critic who gave Pauly Shore's sitcom a bad review, really? This show was the benchmark of badness for Fox that took seven years to dethrone? It just seems like a regular cheesy sitcom with an unconventional premise. What exactly are we missing here? Maybe the answer can be found when Howie gives his Undertaker some simple instructions involving a recent burial. Go to my
1: garage, get my Pinto, open the trunk, take the shovel off the wall, put it in the trunk and then close the trunk. Drive the Pinto to plot 17A, open the trunk, take the shovel out and dig a hole down to hit the red Maserati. Pull the Maserati out of the hole and then take the vent Milner woman out of the Maserati, put her in the Pinto and then drive the Pinto into the hole. Take the shovel and fill up the hole, then take the shovel and toss it in the trunk of the Maserati. Take the Maserati to a car wash, don't forget hot wax, and tip the Puerto Rican a quarter. Then take the Maserati back to my house and hang the shovel
0: on the wall. And bring me a Diet Dr. Pepper, no ice. So, he wants to steal a dead person's car. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Granted, some better jokes could've squeezed in there if they cut that minute of dialogue down to a simple, Raul! You know that sports car we buried? Dig it up. I'm keeping it. And then you'd use the leftover 50 seconds to flesh out the characters a little more. Like Howie's wife, who we get to know in the next scene, not to mention the duo's seemingly loving relationship.
1: Who is Ernie Lapidus?
2: A scoundrel and a rake.
1: And who loves him?
2: The girl in the cage. Why? Because he opened the door.
1: And does he love her?
2: Oh, yes.
0: And how does she know?
2: Because of all the cages he ever rattled, hers was the only one he opened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and while I'm sure that there was something metaphorical about that dialogue there, a reminder that this is a Fox sitcom from the early 1990s. Clever often took a back seat to edgy. Such is the case when a possible break-in is happening. you
2: want any of the penis? What's it to you? i seen you on TV! What do you want? Uncle Boris died. I see. Uh, where is Uncle Boris now? In the bag.
1: In this bag? He was a smallish man, wasn't he?
3: He wasn't a man. He was a hamster.
0: Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) And while we question the logistics of giving a hamster a funeral, something slightly more interesting takes place.
1: Two policemen,
0: Ernie. Not one policeman. Two policemen. Whatever he did was big.
2: Ernie, it's probably nothing. You know how Warren
0: overreacts? Ernie?
2: Ernie?
1: I'll send for you.
2: No.
0: Oh, Hey, I don't often do this because it's sort of our lot in the afterlife to take down bad TV shows. But what exactly is wrong here? It just seems like a typical run-of-the-mill bad sitcom. But nothing that would fall under our standards, except maybe the grave robbing and the minor jokes about sex with minors. But is it me? Am I losing my touch? I haven't seen the thing in this show that would raise even the slightest shade of red for flags. Hell, not even the cops questioning Howie about the grave robbing is doing anything to move the needle. What's going on? How should I know?
1: What, I, I suppose they think I stole an Italian car. Look how they jump to conclusions. Mr. Lapini. Do you actually expect the jury to believe that I dug it up and drove it into my garage? Or better yet, just maybe. (laughs) I hired some idiot to dig around in the mud for me. Is that what you think I (laughs) did?
0: Not now. And, hard as it is to admit, that part is clever. A car that Howie buried, that he now wants to steal for himself, is actually a stolen car itself. That's a good twist. A good twist on a Fox sitcom of the early 1990s. And yet, I still have this feeling that something isn't right here. Wheel out the corkboard, boys! going to try to figure this out the way conspiracy theorists try to make sense out of the senseless by wrapping bits of twine around thumbtacks that are holding up various pieces of the show to see if there's a connection as to why this show was as bad as paulie shore's sitcom bear with me we're going for a ride Okay, uh, Good Grief is a show that aired on Fox in 1990. Good Grief is somehow as bad as Paulie Shore's sitcom from 1997, but not bad enough so that Paulie Shore takes its place as the worst Fox sitcom up to that point. <laughs> Good Grief Start. Howie Mandel is the co-manager of a funeral home. His wife is the future Francine Smith from American Dad, which was a Fox show, but then it moved to TBS. TBS is a network that used to air Fox shows until they moved over to Disney's cable and streaming properties. But American Dad stays at TBS, even though the show is produced by Fox, which is now owned by Disney. Disney also owns the FX and FXX networks, FXX airs It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which did an episode about somebody named Pepe Sylvia, which we revealed to be Jay Leno's evil twin who fake killed David Letterman on his 1986 comedy special which only wound up happening because Leno was becoming popular thanks to his appearances with Johnny Carson in the 70s. A show that was just about the only thing making NBC any money back then so now we gotta follow the money.
3: NBC was owned by RCA back in the 70s. RCA invented technology to create both television
0: and radio at the turn of the 20th century. The mascot for RCA was the dog with his ear
3: to the speaker. The dog was listening to sounds coming out of that speaker. Sounds are came out of Pauly Shore's mouth whenever he spoke, and that's why his show replaced Good Grief as the worst fox sitcom of all time!
0: (laughs) Either that, or maybe Good Grief was simply mediocre. I could be wrong about this stuff, and unlike other conspiracy theorists out there, at least I have the sense to admit when I'm wrong. Anyway... On to Act Two, where Howie is now trying to hide the newly exhumed sports car so it could look like he's returning it to its rightful owner, even though he still wants to keep it anyway.
1: Does anybody care that I have a court order here? I'm afraid, officer, that there are some things greater than the law. Then I'll just have to arrest you. All right. You want the car? We'll just go dig it up and toss the Vent Melner woman into a Subaru and the hell with it. <laughs> but you will have the decency to wait until morning. I will not disturb her sleep for some insurance company.
0: We'll be back at dawn. And may the Great One go easy on your soul. Uh, yeah, the uh, Great One called earlier, and he has this to say about the whole situation. Bang zoom! <laughs> so now we're in a mad dash to get Howie off the hook for a car that was already dug up. A plotline that could easily have been resolved if Stu Silver simply wrote, "Hey officer, it turns out we already dug up the car because the idea of burying someone in it, although it was the deceased's last request, still seems pretty stupid." Here are the keys. But instead, we have about five more minutes to kill, and that includes a sudden change of heart from Warren thanks to what looks like sincere grandstanding from Howie. Ernie, I was wrong about you. I said you had no heart, no feelings, no integrity. I was wrong. You do care.
1: What you said about hallowed ground and disturbing the dead, I would walk to the
0: ends of the earth with you, Ernie Lapidus. You are quite a big man. Thank you, Warren. We then get a repeat of the gag that we heard in Act 1, only with more people within earshot because idiot funeral home director has to idiot himself.
1: Go to my garage. Open the trunk of the Maserati, take the shovel off the wall, put it in the trunk and close the trunk. Drive the Maserati to plot 17A. Open the trunk, take the shovel out, and dig a hole down until you hit the Pinto. Drive the Pinto out of the hole, take the vent woman out of the Pinto, put her in the Maserati, and then drive the Maserati into the hole. Take the shovel and fill up the hole, then throw the shovel in the trunk of the Pinto. Drive my Pinto to the car wash, have them fill up the windshield spritzer, and then drive it home and hang the shovel back up on the wall. And bring me one elevator shoe and a water pistol.
0: <laughs> and now, using that exact same way to tell the joke, here's what I would like to do with this show. <clears throat> Go to the Fox network in 1990, tell Barry Diller not to pick up this show. Convince him to convince another network to pick it up. Use that money that you would waste on the show to buy the rights to something people would actually want to watch on the network, like, say, football. Stop by Musso and Franks for a cocktail, then return to your office and ask yourself if it was a good idea to run a fledgling network while you were still riding high as the president of a more successful movie company. Oh, and uh, also pick up a bottle of Simple Green and a pack of raisins. Because if they can be arbitrary with a punchline, so can I. Naturally, Warren doesn't take this new revelation well, but for some reason, Howie's wife does. You desecrated her grave. I desecrated my Pinto.
1: (laughs) You're laughing? You, You think this is amusing? He is nowhere near amusing. You are a crook! Who do crooks steal from? The living he stole from the dead after she stole from the living pay attention Warren
0: <laughs> so that ends that plot line with zero consequences or at least zero immediate consequences there's still a matter of the aftermath to deal with
3: oh Deb look we've got to make a
0: decision about Ernie
2: I did make a decision about Ernie he's my husband I love him and I'm keeping him
1: he is vile despicable and beyond contempt. It is him
0: or me, Deb, and I am not going anywhere. Ernie Lapidus is through. I'm sure I know what he meant to say, but it is her brother saying it's either him or me. Uh, what do you think, less coked version of Howie Mandel? There are only a couple in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> but this being the pilot, of course, that's not how things work out as Francine Smith tries to show her brother the light. Tell me one thing. Why do you love him? Why on earth do you love that man?
2: Because he gives me life. (laughs) Life. Yeah, he gives this whole place life. When I was growing up, I would run into the embalming room to tell Dad something, and I would get confused about who I was supposed to talk to.
0: (laughs) Are you saying that we were boring?
2: (sighs) No, Warren. I'm saying... We were dead.
0: So, not unlike Coca-Cola in the 1970s, Howie adds life. Even if Howie himself starts to realize the weight of death while burying the hamster of the boy intruder from moments ago. So much so, that Howie eventually changes his tune on that commercial that he did at the beginning of the show. Now with a much more... somber tone.
1: Hi, I'm back. (laughs) I just buried a person. I Highly emotional. Yes. The person I buried was dead. We were buried three or four a week over here. And that's a slow week. That's what we do at Sincerity Mortuary. We cry and we bury. We cry because we care. And we bury them because they're dead. I can't go on.
0: How's that, Warren? Is that better? <laughs> and as we reach the end of this show's mortal coil, the question remains. How exactly was this show so bad that it took Paulie Shore seven years to take its place as one of the worst sitcoms the Fox network ever had? Hell, even TV critics had a hard time pinning down why this show seemed doomed to fail. Greg Dawson of the Orlando Sentinel said, "...it's hard to say exactly what the problem is in Good Grief. It could be the frequently moronic script, or it could be that Mandel simply overpowers everybody else on screen. For all its fumbling, this series can still be saved." While David Zerowick of the Baltimore Sun says, "...what's maddening about this half-hour is how badly Mandel's talent is served. Mandel is a brilliantly manic stand-up comedian who could have made good grief irresistible if his out-of-control comic persona had been given free reign, end quote. Even the Fox network wasn't sure what to make of it. They really believed they had a good thing going thanks to the show inheriting a strong lead-in from Married With Children, and the producers even went so far as to get none other than Jerry Lewis to direct one of the show's last episodes. But, the pulse remained flat, as Good Grief eventually experienced its own funeral after 13 episodes. I almost hate to say this, but after 52 shows, this may be the first time ever that a so-called bad TV show has stumped me. And that's unfortunate because, according to the rule book of the Underworld, It says that the shows that I cover have to have at least one of the nine circles of telehel in order for its induction to be complete. And that failure to do so means my soul goes through reincarnation, and Satan knows what fate awaits me there. So, in this case, instead of our usual nine-circle routine, we're gonna go through them one at a time to see if I missed anything. And if I didn't, well, you know the old saying about mercy on one's soul. Wish me luck, folks, because I may never get a chance to speak to you again after this.
3: Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! Okay,
0: let's go through it. All 13 shows aired, so it's not eligible for Limbo. There isn't enough behind-the-scenes information to let me know whether there was any gluttony or greed off-camera. Wendy Shaw was pretty cute back then, but I don't think that's enough for lust. The Fox network believed in it enough to let the show run its course without any interference. In fact, they believed in Howie Mandel so much that they gave him his own Saturday morning cartoon as an insurance policy. We all remember Bobby's world, right? So, we can rule out treachery. That only leaves the show itself, and I kinda don't wanna judge the show on the plot itself, because, number one, we only do that with TV movies. But more importantly, even though there are elements here that critics are frowning on, that's just how the characters are written. And in the end, some people liked them, and others clearly did not. Granted, Howie's character does come off as a bit of a con man and Wait a minute That's it That's it I was so charmed by Howie's character on the surface I completely forgot what his character was actually supposed to be A flim flam man who was looking to make a quick buck Thanks to his shady past involving various fraud tactics Sweet Satan it's good to hear that bell Yes of course it's so obvious now People with charm are probably the most dangerous people to root for, especially if they're a protagonist, because you know there's something brewing underneath. Just ask Ripley Holden on Viva Laughlin. Not only that, but since this was TV's first show to take place at a funeral home and a cemetery, not counting anything macabre like The Munsters or The Addams Family or anything, this was an idea that was too far ahead of its time until HBO gave death some dignity with Six Feet Under 10 years later. Adding a laugh track to a funeral was enough to not only sully the dignity of funerals in general, possibly in a heretical way, but it would also justify the wrath that the critics felt even though other people liked the show anyway people were just not ready to laugh at death. Not unlike this day and age, when people seem to be doing so on a daily basis. By the skin of our teeth, good grief earns three out of nine circles of telehell, And it's a good thing too, because looking at a run of the mill TV flop is probably one of the hardest things to review around here. While we were eventually able to find the things that were wrong with it, this was one of those cases where the good actually outweighed the bad and hopefully I don't come across a show like that for a long time. And just to be sure that I don't, I think the next thing I need to look at has to be a pilot, just so I can guarantee at least the bell for limbo can be rung. Fortunately, I've been saving up something just in case I need a recharge. Next time on Telehel. if it weren't for the fact that he's still alive, as of this recording anyway, Bob Barker... Would spin in his
3: grave over this one. Coming up on Truth or Consequences, our two remaining couples face the next extreme consequence. And someone in our audience is going to get naked. And they don't even know it. Until then. If it's not in Telehel, it's not worth
0: a damn. Telehel was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Podcast. By the way, shows like Bees aren't cheap. Do what you can, and can what you do, at Patreon.com slash Podcast.